Welcome to the London Society podcast. When you enter the Queen Elizabeth Olympic Park from Stratford, you see that the legacy of London 2012 is still unfolding. Ahead of you stands the London Stadium, the adapted version of the original Olympic Stadium. And there's the curvaceous London Aquatic Centre, which ten years ago was the arena of elite swimmers and divers, and is now used by the London public too. Then you notice something newer, something that is still taking shape. To your right, at the edge of the Waterworks River, a row of new buildings is under construction, and to your left, across the water, another one has come out of the ground. You're looking at East Bank, the biggest new cultural cluster London has seen, certainly since the completion of the South Bank, and arguably since Prince Albert prompted the transformation of South Kensington. And don't take my word for it. I'm Alistair Spaulding. I'm the Artistic Director and Chief Executive of Satterswell's Theatre. When I, when I was contemplating this, I went to speak to a few uh, property developers in London and I, I asked them what they thought, really experienced people, um, about this idea. And they all said, yes, you should go. This London needs this other centre. Um, and, uh, you know, this was actually a little while ago, obviously nearly 10 years, and it was very different then. It was about more vi- visioning how it would be rather than as it was. Um, because they were just starting some of the housing, etc. Um, and, of course, now you see it. You see it in Stratford. You see the whole energy of London is moving eastwards. It absolutely is. So I'm Tim Reeve. I'm the Deputy Director and Chief Operating Officer of the VNA. I always say in a huge oversimplification that if the VNA at South Kensington didn't exist and somebody had come up with the idea of a museum that is art and design for all, where should we build it? I think you probably might end up somewhere close to where we're building VNA East. Um, I'm Alan Davy. I'm controller of BBC Radio Three, the Proms, and the BBC uh, Orchestras and Choirs. I'm responsible across the BBC for the East Bank project and the move of BBC Music Studios there. It's based in a community. It's going to interact with the community. Uh, it's going to record and perform marvelous things. Um, and the Stratford sound is going to be something that's that's going to be amazing out of these studios and broadcast to the world. As well as V&A East, Sadler's Wells East and the new BBC studios, Stratford Waterfront is to be the new home of the London College of Fashion, part of the University of Arts London. And completing the East Bank set is a new campus for University College London, spread over two sites, one on the other side of the Waterworks River, beside the Orbit Tower, the other to the south of the aquatic centre. Thinking about our origins as a university, you know, we were in Bloomsbury, it was a fairly dodgy area at the time, and the whole idea was to be open, be open to all. And the idea for UCL East was like, can we do something like that here, you know, in a fabulous area that's up and coming and huge diversity of people? Can we be that university that's open to all? That was UCL professor Kate Jones speaking to me at the park itself. I'm Dave Hill. I'm a trustee of the London Society and I run the website onlondon.co.uk. This podcast will tell the story of East Bank, which, like it or not, really got going because of Boris Johnson when he was Mayor of London. Around the time of the London 2012 Olympic and Paralympic Games, he, like others, 
thought something extra should be added to the park's legacy. Johnson's idea was to emulate what Prince Albert fostered in South Ken, a project which, for a time, was nicknamed Albertopolis. His wheeze was to call the Olympic Park scheme Olympicopolis. Get it? Soon, he had the early partners enthused. But what was Olympicopolis going to look like? A competition was held to find architects for the Stratford waterfront section. The winning bid was led by Allies and Morrison. I visited Bob Allies at the company's offices in Southwark. Interestingly, when, when the project was first um, put together, um, I mean, before, before the competition, there was an idea that all of the different uses might go into one great big building, a sort of Centre Pompidou building, a sort of single building. But it was very, very obvious that in the end, that's not what a group of people who run major institutions are interested in. They are interested in their own identity and how they project that out into the outside world. What was called for here were teams of architects because there were going to be four different clients. We chose, or we suggested, working with an Irish practice, O'Donnell and Toomey, very important Irish practice, RIBA gold medalists, um, and also a much smaller Spanish practice, um, and put our put that team forward. The components of the Stratford waterfront were allocated and designed. We, we each did two buildings. We did the London College of Fashion and the BBC Studios, and O'Donnell and Toomey did Sadler's Wells and the V&A. The Spanish practice continued their role, but looking more at the public realm, and in particular at the bridge, the new bridge which we constructed. There was another bit of the scheme to think about too. Previously, the waterfront site had been earmarked for housing. That couldn't be just forgotten about. So originally, there were going to be four individual buildings. And then on the northern end of the site, the aim was to put all the housing that would have, been, would have occupied the whole of the site into a much smaller plot at the northern end. And that took the form of two very tall residential buildings. Government funds to help Olympicopolis had been promised by the then-Chancellor George Osborne in December 2013. One year later, helped by Boris Johnson's good relationship with his fellow Tory, Osborne announced that £141 million would be provided. And in May 2015, the Allies and Morrison team was named the winner of the architect's competition. For Bob Allies, this meant the continuation of an already long relationship. So as a project, it was fascinating having these four really important clients, you know, with their strong opinions meant that it was always going to be a fascinating project to work within. Um, We also, because we'd been involved in the master planning for the Olympics and for the legacy, we also had a very strong um, commitment, I suppose, to, to what sort of place should be created on East Bank. By then, UCL's separate and self-funded part of the great endeavour was progressing too. And in November 2015, Mayor Johnson announced another £45 million of Olympicopolis funding from private donors. But Johnson was already fading from the story. He'd won a parliamentary seat at the general election held earlier that year. The rest is colourful history. And in May 2016, a new mayor was elected, Labour's Sadiq Khan. 
the Borisonian Olympicopolis name vanished from mayoral communications with almost comical alacrity, and very soon that pair of extremely tall residential buildings vanished from the project's architectural drawings. Bob Allies. Um, it was, even from our perspective, a surprisingly ambitious way of handling that requirement. And in the end, the buildings were so tall that they, we were aware that they began to, be, to occur in critical strategic views of London, across London, in particular the one from Richmond Park. Thus began one of the more diverting subplots of the whole Olympic Park story. There is a rule that nothing must be built that interferes with the view of St Paul's Cathedral as seen through a telescope on King Henry's Mound. That's King Henry VIII, since you ask. As Bob Allies mentioned, it's in Richmond, which is ten miles away from St Paul's. The two skyscrapers would have been even further away yet they would have loomed directly behind the famous dome as seen through that telescope. Boris Johnson's successor, Mayor Khan, said that would never do. Allies and Morrison went back to the drawing board. Um, so what we then did was to fuse the, the cultural buildings much more closely together to generate more room for a residential piece at the northern end. I mean, I'm really keen on the fact that there is residential use there. I think the biggest, one of the biggest dangers actually in introducing the cultural and academic uses into these sites is a kind of loss of the life and activity that residential uses bring. So I, I was always very keen that we had, could have both on our site. Um, and, and what was interesting then is that we, we, as it worked out, in the end three of the buildings were to the south of the new bridge we were building and one building, the V&A, was to the north. So the V&A became a single building, as it were, almost on its own. Um, they're all connected by a, by a two-level landscape, so they never quite pull apart, but the V&A on its own. And then the other three buildings effectively forming a terrace, a continuous terrace of buildings. And um, it probably began in a kind of pragmatic way, as a, as a necessary way of using the site fully, but actually, in the end, I think it's probably one of the most interesting aspects of the project. Because since the 19th century, really, public buildings have increasingly been thought of as freestanding, independent buildings in space, with no attempt to form, to use them to form places. And so actually building a terrace of cultural buildings, I think, is a really interesting aspect of the project now. As for the housing element, that was rethought so that four much shorter towers will eventually be built. But there were more problems to come with the scheme, now officially renamed East Bank. Brexit brought labour shortages, Covid meant delays, the cost of the project rose and changes had to be made, but none of them too radical. Financial pressures always have an influence on the design of things, so there are lots of ways in which we have, in the end, to take decisions in response to cost and change things and adjust things. And so there's a history of those changes. But fundamentally, I think the scheme has survived in a very clear way. And I don't think any of the things which we've had to change would be things where people would look at and say, oh, that's a shame they had to do that. And there's nothing like that happening. Um, but of course, 
you can't do a building project which, without all the time monitoring costs and things like, I mean, it's a trivial thing, but I mean, the floor to ceiling heights in the London College of Fashion were originally intended to be a bit taller than they are now. Um, would have made even more beautiful studios. Um, environmentally, maybe would have been slightly better because taller spaces are easier to deal with. But in, in the end, you're weighing up these costs all the time and they're the sort of decisions you have to take. Having said that, I don't think... I think it's very interesting these days because you, public buildings aren't... They're not supposed to be lavish buildings either. You know, you're fi- trying to find the right balance, really, to make sure that the, you, you know, you're leaving something which is really appreciated by people, by the people who are going to use the buildings, and yet you, you haven't been um, indulgent either in the way you've spent the money, because that doesn't seem right either anymore. And I, and I think the buildings are, have all tried to find their own... Um, you know, characteristics in that way, their own way of, sol- of solving that. I think one, one other thing I would just like to add is really that it, it's easy to think about the, the East Bank as, as this group of four buildings. I mean, in a way, that is what it is. But what was really important as we worked on the project, I mean, and I'm saying now really almost beyond the competition stage, but when we were working with the LLDC on the design of the project was actually the interface between the buildings and the landscape. And um, one thing that the LLDC were really, really committed to was the idea that of, of the extent to which maybe one should say one could overcome the, um, the feeling that these buildings were just separate from the public, you know, they were institutions sitting there, they had a front door and you had to go through through the front door to go and experience them. Um, and to what extent, through the, the way the landscape is designed, we could make a setting for the buildings that was, in a sense, attractive in its own right, so people would want to be there, um, and in being there would find it much easier to be drawn into going into the buildings and using the buildings. So that landscape component, which of course is, has been fundamental to the Olympics from day one really, um, is still a very important aspect of this project. The evolving legacy of London 2012 can be assessed in many ways. One crucial measure of its success will be the involvement of local people with East Bank and its activities. Let's end by returning to voices we heard at the beginning. One part of the UCL East Campus has already quietly opened. Here's Professor Kate Jones again. There are kind of lots of strands, I think, about how we're planning to engage um, local communities, as well as having a public event space and people can use our campus and use the rooms there. Some further thoughts from the BBC's Alan Davey. So, you know, we won't just land there. Uh, and open up this shiny new building to hurrah, here's the BBC. Uh, what we're doing is we're working with the community now. And that all has to kind of accumulate. And it's long, it's a long-term commitment. And that's what it has to be. And that's how you make change through culture. And that's how culture can make a difference. And looping back, that's what was behind the original Olympic bid. That it was about sport. 
it was also about culture. It was about giving people opportunities. It was about aspiration. As well as opening its new museum, the V&A will be relocating its huge reserve collection to the innovation hub here east on a different part of the Olympic Park. It's a two-part expansion to the east. Here's Tim Reeve. We understand it is, it, it is a, a challenge that simply building something in a different geographical geographic location is not, is, is not enough. Um, we, we've got to really you know, connect with a, a new audience for the V&A and really under, try and understand it and get under the skin of it and try and work out how we can create a positive impact for people who live and work in East London who have, who have kind of real talent and ambition and, and to try and encourage them with the full sort of range of possibilities that can come from creativity. And finally, Alistair Spaulding of Sadler's Wells. The big challenge going there is not getting the existing audience to go there. They will do because the transport links are there and a lot of our our audiences live in Hackney on that sort of side of the park. The big challenge is to make sure that the people in the boroughs that is supposed to be serving actually come to the theatre. I think the spirit of the Olympics really lived on and and because it was very cleverly done, I think, you know, it was like giving a, a new breath to a part of, part of London as, as, a, as the sporting event, which could then lead to all of the other elements that now, now exist. So, you know, that was really part of it. The, the Olympics were a big success. Let's, let's keep going with that. You've been listening to the London Society podcast. Thank you for joining me. Goodbye. <laughs>